0: If you would uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, before we begin, I would simply like to uh, say thank you for the privilege and the honor it has been to be among you these many years and then of late to be supported by you to go to seminary and then to here at this church serve and learn more about what it means to be a part of the ministerial team and pastoring and shepherding the flock of God. And also for tonight, for the privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you. As we do that, now look to the Word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His guidance. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do give You thanks. We thank You that You indeed have given to us Your Word And your word is the infallible and errant truth of which we, Lord, need to hear and need to obey. And Lord, we cannot do this apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. We would ask now, Lord, that you would come and you would open our eyes, open our ears, and indeed open our hearts that we may believe and abide in all that is said there. Lord, that we may live all the days of our life to the glory of you and to our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We will begin reading at verse 9 of chapter 3, Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not too long ago, uh, I viewed on television two or three episodes of the old TV show Matlock. Some of you will probably remember that show. Uh, If you've seen it, you know that the actor Andy Griffith plays a defense attorney named Ben Matlock. And he always takes on these hard luck cases. People who have been accused of a terrible crime, uh, usually uh, murder, but who did not do the crime. Matlock and his associates have to gather the evidence that will persuade a jury that his client... Did not do the crime. Now, their efforts are oftentimes g- <clears throat> give you the impression that they may not succeed in saving their client. But as only in TV land can happen, at the last minute, some crucial, clinching, irrefutable evidence or witness surfaces, which Matlock then craftily uses to identify the true cl- criminal and his client is exonerated. The best and most persuasive evidence for the case is presented last, in Matlock at least, for dramatic effect. Well, in the weeks that have preceded us, we have seen that Paul has been building a case too. He started by saying that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He then said that the gospel, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying in those verses that the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God requires of us, comes through faith alone. But is this true only through faith? Well... Paul, here in our passage this evening, gives us a summary statement of this in verse 9 by saying, "...what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin." Now, he has been laying out a case that first and foremost, God's judgment is not an event waiting to happen... ...merely at the end of time. But it is a reality being experienced even now. It is evident in the immediate consequences... ...of suppressing the truth about God... ...through ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's revelation of Himself is not hidden... ...but clear for all to see in the creation... ...that God has made. No one can dare say to Him or claim there's not enough evidence for God's existence. In fact, not only is it evident that He is there and not silent, but everywhere, everyone knows from that knowledge what the proper response should be to that knowledge. We should glorify God, give thanks to Him, worship Him, and worship Him alone. And we should serve Him. And yet, instead of glorifying, worshiping, giving thanks, and serving God, everyone, according to Paul, has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And instead of worshiping God, we have worshiped the created things. Now, Paul then goes on to address the issue of the Jewish situation. And in the most recent weeks, we have seen that Jews claimed or thought perhaps that they were in a better position than everyone else. Why? Well, because they had the Word of God. Not only did they have the Word of God, they had the sign and seal of the covenant that was established with Abraham, the sign of circumcision. But as we saw, Paul made it clear that those things are not enough. Because if you have the law and you disobey the law, that doesn't do you any good. And in fact, if you then fall back on your circumcision as a way in which to secure your acceptance in the presence of God, well, if you have broken the law, you have now rendered the circumcision, that sign and seal, empty useless. It will do you no good. So simply having the law of God and simply having the sign and seal of God's covenant is not enough to secure one's salvation in the presence of God. And so in all that Paul has been saying, he has silenced the objections. He has made it clear That all of us, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, all the rest of us who are not Jews, are all under sin. And by this phrase, under sin, what he is saying is, is that we are all subject to the dominion of sin. We are subject to the power and influence and control of sin. It is something that rules our lives and controls everything that we do. But now, but now Paul wants to bring to bear clearly and without question That this simply isn't his opinion. Now, he has made it clear before that he is reflecting what Scripture already says. He's been saying, Scripture says on occasion. But here now, as a final note, a final piece of evidence, the most irrefutable, incontestable evidence that can be presented is the Word of God. And it is marked by the phrase we see here in verse 10, as it is written. And whenever you read that phrase in the New Testament, as it is written, you can just read this is what God has said. And so you can equate scripture with what God says. What scripture says, God says, and what God says, scripture says. And so Paul is going to what is incontestable evidence in the presence of Jews. Because if Jews have thought before that the scriptures didn't speak this way, that somehow, some way, that their good deeds, even if they're not perfect good deeds, their their good deeds would get them in favorable light with God. This is not going to stand before God. Because God has clearly said these things. These things which we find in the rest of verse 10 through verse 18. And I want us to see several things in these verses this evening. And uh, we want to first see that our sin is evident in the fact that we fail to conform to God's standard. We fail to conform to God's standard. And it's everyone who fails to conform to God's standard. Note some of these consistently used phrases and words. In verse 10, None, no, not one. Then again in 11, No one, no one, all have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. The emphasis is deliberate, obviously, in the Scriptures. Because here, Paul is quoting from Psalm 43 and Psalm 53. You recall that the beginning of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 both say, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And then it goes on to say that no one is righteous. Not even one. Now, among the Jews... It was thought that the righteousness of Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders among them, was the pinnacle example of how to be pleasing to God. But Jesus comes along and declares in the Sermon on the Mount, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like to hear those words if you were a Jew. How can anyone exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, the teachers of the Word of God? These people are the pinnacle examples before us. They live this out in our presence all day long. Then, to add greater weight to this, Jesus later said that we must be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So in the Scriptures, to be righteous in God's sight is to be blameless before Him. And it's also to be blameless before one another. Remember the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And the second greatest ...is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Who among us can say that we have done this? None of us, not one of us has ever kept the law of God perfectly. So, though we may turn our eyes to very religious people... ...people who seem to be greatly obedient to the things that the Bible teaches... ...according to this passage... From God's point of view, that's not the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. The reality is, we have not loved God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. And as we shall see in a moment, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves either. There are other passages you can look at in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, that bear this out. Ecclesiastes seven twenty says that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And again, in Proverbs twenty nine, who can say, "I have made my heart pure and clean? I am clean from my sin." Clearly, from God's point of view, what God says is. That no one is righteous. And that means we have not not met the standard that God has set before us as to what righteousness is. And then we see here that no one understands. What is the import of that? What does it mean to say that no one understands? Well, it's this. We do not apprehend spiritual truth. In fact, Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, that spiritual things must be discerned spiritually. And the natural person, and he's speaking of, you and I, apart from the grace of God, do not seek out the things of God, because... We can't or we won't because in our natural state of sinfulness we don't care about the things of God and we can't apprehend the things of God. And so left to ourselves we will never seek out God. And so man is unrighteous because he does not have understanding and because and because we do not have understanding. We do not seek God. We are made out. We have made. We are. We were made at our core by God when we were created to be spiritual beings to live in a spiritual relationship with God. But because because of the sinfulness of our hearts, we do not live for God. We do not. Seek spiritual relationship with God. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And the thing about dead people is they don't respond to treatment. The only way dead people will ever respond positively to anything is if they're resurrected. But we, according to the Scriptures, are dead. And because we have no understanding, we are not righteous, and thus we do not seek God. Now these words, we do not seek God, might come across a bit astonishing to us. Uh, We see in Scripture clearly commandments to seek God. In the Old Testament, we find that we are to seek the Lord while He may be found... ...and call upon Him while He is near, in Isaiah... And again, in the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, "...you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you," declares the Lord. Of course, we could understand these verses best by seeing the context in which God was doing His work among His covenant people Israel, calling them back to Himself, now that they had tasted His judgment upon them for their disobedience to Him. But we can then go to the New Testament... We may call to mind that our Lord Jesus Himself bids us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and to ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened up to you. So if of these passages we find here say that we should seek the Lord, then what is being said here? That we don't seek Because God is the one that is here declaring that we don't seek. Well, we might understand this best is that the difference between two things. One, uh, the commandment that's given by God uh, is, is in course, it correlates with God's character. We must do that which correlates with who God is. We must live in light of who God is. We must reflect God's character. So God has every right to command us to seek him. But on the other hand... We must also understand this, that these commandments are best best understood in the context of a life that's been redeemed. A life that is now rescued by God and returned to fellowship by God through Christ. But many people today believe that they are seeking God. Even many churches have established services of worship based on this premise... ...calling them what we say seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive services. I think the best way we may understand this is that of trying to make a worship service attractive or comfortable for people... ...who are not believers so that they will perhaps want to come and worship at our church... ...or that they would become believers having come to our church... Now, I don't want to impugn the motives of some of our brethren who have set services of worship out of their desire to reach people with the gospel. But we must keep in mind who it is that is making this declaration about us. It is God himself who is declaring there is no one who seeks God. Sure, we may be asking questions about God, the God revealed in the Bible about Jesus Christ. But this is not what is in view here. Seeking God is not the same as asking intellectual questions about the nature of God or who Jesus Christ is. From the perspective of God, we do not seek Him, as Luther put it, Martin Luther put it, as He desires to be sought and found. Namely, not by human wisdom and searching, but by faith and in humility. true seeking after God, he says moves us to dedicate our lives to Him, to obey Him. Inward desire and seeking after God is true love for God. And it is this that God declares, we do not do. Remember what Paul has proclaimed already in Romans 1. We are looking for a God, perhaps, but not the God who is really there. We don't want the God that is there. We, as Paul says, exchange the truth of God for a lie. But then if we are not seeking God on His terms, can it be said that we really are seeking God? We may be looking for something to fill the emptiness inside of us but until we are willing to bow our knee before the Lord of glory, we are not seeking God. We must come to Him on His terms. And then, here at the last, <clears throat> all have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. You may recall the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us, has turned to His own way. And we have become worthless. To become worthless from God's point of view is to be basically worthless, like a, working on a piece of paper, drawing a picture, for example, uh, or a painting, and having come all the way through it, and now seeing that it is no longer of any value, just crumpling it up, throwing it away, and starting over. That's the idea. That's how worthless we have become before God because we are unrighteous and ungodly. We do not understand, we do not seek God because we've turned aside from Him and chosen our own way. And thus, we now are worthless. And so none of us do good. When I was in college, the professor of my History of Western Man course described that the most prevalent view from the Enlightenment period the 18th century Enlightenment, on, on, and then on, has been the idea that man is basically good and his progress is inevitable. And, of course, this view is still embraced by many people today. Yet, when one attempts even a modest survey of the history of the 20th century, it is the most violent and most bloody since the Enlightenment. The Russian Civil War in the first quarter of the 20th century claimed between 5 and 6 million lives. Together, the two world wars claimed more than 60 million. And it is believed that Hitler, Stalin, and Mao are responsible for the lives of another 60 million of their own citizens. And this is just a small portion of all that has transpired during the 20th century. So one might ask, how can people yet cling to the notion of the basic goodness of all human beings in the face of such devastation and loss of life? If there's one biblical doctrine that is most evident to all, it is the doctrine of original sin. There is nothing good in us. And as the next point that I want to make bears this out... Our sin is evident by our actions. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace is they have not known. Note the use of physical parts of the body to describe the manner in which our sins are made known. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet. I've been reading David Robertson's little book, The Darwin Letters. Uh, It is a response to the infamous British atheist Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And in it he argues at one point how the Christian worldview provides for many the most persuasive argument for the existence of God. Along these lines he shows that Christianity explains the existence of evil, explains why we have a sense of real right and wrong, and finally explains us, Explains us, he says on this point, In looking at the horror of the Holocaust, it was most humbling and awful experience to realize not only were the Nazis human, but I was too. The same evil that came to such horrendous fruition in the Nazis was also, at at least in seed form, present in me. Robertson then recalls G.K. Chesterton's famous letter to the editor of the London Times in answer to their question, What's wrong with the world Chesterton responded, Dear Editor, What's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. Sin is born in our hearts. Thus it is not that we are sinners because we sin, but it is the reverse. We sin. We do sinful acts because this is what's in our hearts already. Jesus explained That for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and these are what defile a person. Or as he says in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. What we say and what we do betray the evil that exists in our hearts. To the question often asked, why can't we all just get along? The answer is clear we don't want to get along. Look at what we say to one another, look at how we tear one another down with our words. With it, we deceive people. We flatter them with our words, but we don't mean the good that we speak. And with it, we would destroy others. We would speak and stab them in the back with our slanderous language. And just consider how easy it is to destroy a reputation of a person by speaking of someone behind their back in the presence of others because of some ill or sin that they have committed against us. James echoes these words when he describes the tongue as a fire, a world of unrighteousness set on fire by the flames of hell. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And Just like a spark on dry leaves sets a forest on fire, so the tongue brings untold destruction and misery. Now, the latter part of these verses, one might think that, well, we might defend ourselves by saying, well, I haven't actually committed murder. I mean, it does say the feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. But even as we said before or saw in the illustrations, it's in our hearts already. Jesus said to the Pharisees who thought that just by keeping the law, do not murder, was enough. That they hadn't committed the physical act. But Jesus said it's not just enough to not commit the physical act. You must also not hate the person in your heart because the seed form of murder is hatred. And even if it's never voiced or never acted out upon, it's still in the heart evidence of wickedness and evil because hatred is evil in the eyes of God. Well, finally, our sin is evident in that we do not fear God. This is a quote from Psalm 36.1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We read in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight and understanding. The idea is that when we approach God in the right way, everything else comes together. It is recognizing who God is and who we are and thus responding in worship, thanksgiving, praise, and obedience to Him. When we fear the Lord, we are looking toward Him. It means we have Him ever present in our thoughts. He is at the center of our lives. Everything we think, say, or do is directed by His wisdom and His understanding. It recognizes that He alone... God himself alone, as the psalmist says, can satisfy the desires of our hearts... ...when he says, you, you Lord, have made known to me the path of life... ...and in your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But as God speaks here, he declares that apart from his grace... There is no fear of Him before our eyes. We're not looking for Him. John Murray wrote that to be destitute of the fear of God is to be godless. And no indictment could be more inclusive and decisive than the charge that has been made here in this verse. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul described the whole of the human races as that they know that God has decreed that death is what we deserve for all of our unrighteousness and godliness. And yet, not only do we continue to do these things, but we give approval to others who do them also. In our sinful state, we would fear men more than we would fear God. And we should take to heart this solemn warning of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Some of the strongest language about judgment comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Well, Paul has laid out the case. There is no defense. There's nothing more that we can say. There's nothing that we can argue in objection. There's nothing that we can present to commend ourselves to God. God has declared it. The scriptures have spoken. We can't contest it. God is a God of truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. As Paul has already said. And what God has said, we cannot refute it. And so here in the last two verses, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be made accountable to God. Before anyone, before anyone can come to Jesus Christ, the scriptural declaration is is that we by nature are children of wrath. Subject to the judgment of God. Not only experiencing it here now, but ultimately experiencing it in its utter, horrible, deplorable, eternal punishment of hell itself. We are, as David says, conceived in iniquity from our birth. One preacher asked, Why is it necessary that God should do something? Why do we need the power of God before we can be saved? Why is righteousness from God so essential? Well, it's because we have nothing to offer. We have nothing before the Lord that we can bring. As we've said, nothing to commend ourselves to Him. Our mouths are stopped. We are made silent. We are spiritually bankrupt. And we've started out with a negative balance, and we've only added to it. And unless God intervenes, we are in dire condition. The wrath of God that is currently upon us remains. And it only increases unless unless it is satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. You see, brothers and sisters, unless we see just how lost, how hopeless, helpless, and utterly destitute we are in our sins, we will never be able to see how wonderful and how awesome is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shall never fall to our faces on the floor and cry out for mercy to God. The grace of the gospel can only appeal to us When we see just how bad we really are, how utterly horrible we really are, and what a precarious position before God we are in. We must be like the tax collector instead of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. We cannot point to our advantages or our acts of righteousness as bargaining chips before God to approve us. The one who leaves here this evening justified is the one who beats their breast and cries out to the Savior, have mercy on me, the sinner, is the only way to come out from under the reign of sin and come under the reign of grace. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, we, we do give you thanks that you have caused those of us who have Believed to see how sinful we really are, how destitute we really are, how utterly lost we are, that there's nothing in our hands that we can bring before you to commend ourselves to you, but we must only cast ourselves before you and cry out for mercy. Father, we pray that you would enrich our hearts as we meditate once again upon this grace that you have shown to us, how great it is, how marvelous it is in light of how far fallen from you we are, so that we might then once again cling fast to you, that we might rejoice in you, and that we might live for you in thanksgiving and praise. Oh Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.